Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. Like the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. There's a bit from this book. The paradox of nostalgia is that which comforts also distresses. So hopefully, in the course of this chat, we'll have an equal dose of comforting and distressing. And again, maybe this is fitting, like skipping to the end of the book, you make this point that time isn't linear. And I thought that was fascinating because obviously that tracks with things like post-traumatic stress disorder at its most extreme, right? But nostalgia is something that everyone understands or relates to in some ways or is haunted by certain things. So I don't know, maybe just as a sort of intro, if you maybe wanted to talk about what nostalgia is or different categories of nostalgia, like where the history of it and maybe just a little bit about yourself to start. Yeah. So my name is Grafton Tanner and I'm a writer and a professor. And uh, the last book that I wrote is is called The Hours Have Lost Their Clock, The Politics of Nostalgia. I wanted to try to give a full picture of nostalgia because nostalgia does tend to be this term that gets used and dropped into discourse. Oh, that person is too nostalgic. Oh, that's just a bunch of nostalgia. Or my favorite that I read often is Writers will say something like, I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about something good in the past, but it's not out of nostalgia, people, okay? So you encounter this throughout my research, looking at this emotion. So what I wanted to do was, I wanted to ask why nostalgia gets used in discourse in the way that it gets used, but I also wanted to understand how it operates as an emotion and how it has operated as an emotion through throughout its history. And if we wanted to start with just a, I guess my basic definition of nostalgia and others may have different definitions, but for me, I view nostalgia as a human emotion that is characterized by a kind of bittersweet longing for the past. And it was originally conceived as a disease. We can get into this if you'd like long, long time ago. When the word first was coined, it was coined as a pathological, maybe even at times deadly disease. And over time, it became demedicalized, something like hysteria. Over time, it drifted from a from the hospital, if you will, to the public sphere, the corporate sector, what have you. It became something other than um, a disease. But I view it as an emotion. And so in that way, I see it as something like anger, like sadness. So something that is fun, fundamentally human and that people feel and experience and express and communicate to others as well. 
And in that way, it can also be used in discourse to meet certain goals. Sometimes those goals are totally fine and very productive. And sometimes they are quite reactionary and problematic. Yeah, there was a quote, nostalgia is an unavoidable reaction to the traumas of the modern world. Yeah, it is. Yeah. My my reaction was Trump's slogan, make America great again, a nostalgia for a time of empire that's fading you know, that that's everywhere. This is one of the really interesting things is like the different types of nostalgia. Solastalgia, is that the right way that you say it? Yeah. This idea that, Harriet, you often mentioned this idea of a declining empire and that if I'm right, the solastalgia thing is it's a homesickness you have at home, right? Which sounds exactly like what is happening in anyone's country which is falling apart, right? Right. That And that term is was coined by a philosopher named Glenn Albrecht, probably, I want to say he coined it in the late 2000s. And he was writing specifically about a kind of, almost like a climate nostalgia, like a nostalgia felt, yeah, nostalgia you feel when you're at home. Communities that witness massive transformations to their environment because of the effects of global warming, because of mountaintop removal, which is very prominent in certain areas of the United States, oil drilling, oil derricks that get put up in people's backyards. That was the where the, the context of that term. But yeah, you can stretch that term to a to almost a context or talking a bit about nationalism or something, a sort of Trump reaction, perhaps reaction to an imperial kind of nostalgia. But yeah, Solastalgia, Glenn Albrecht, he has an excellent book called Earth Emotions that was only, I think it came out like 2019 or so. It's really excellent. The example I gave of nostalgia is also a lie. It's a longing for an imagined past that didn't exist. Yeah. And I will say that one of the one of the things that in looking at nostalgia, what I find is that most of when it comes to something like human memory and trying to conceive of the past and therefore maybe have an emotional attachment to it or emotional reaction to the past. Some amount of it is a kind of negotiation and a renegotiation or what some people may even refer to as like a kind of revision where we cobble together what we need out of the past in order to serve certain wants and desires um, in, in the present. So to some extent, nostalgia is always a distortion. It just depends on if we want to talk about dangers of it, to what degree the distortion serves or who does that distortion serve and to what degree does it completely falsify the past? We can agree that there are certain, or at least I would, maybe not every historian would agree with this, but I do say, I do obviously believe in certain objective realities, things that actually happened, but but then human memory is extremely fickle and strange. And so I find myself, even as I get older, there are certain things I negotiate about my own past to pick certain elements out of it to, to remain afloat in the present. And then I'm, but it's, in some cases, it's a complete revision of an event in my own life. And I, so you have to be like, how much is this? Am I just making up? <laughs> I definitely want to jump on that point because there is an amazing extract you have in the book about, is it the, one of the main members of the band from the Fleet Foxes? That was a prime example of, okay, yeah, there's these bigger picture things, make America great again, this sort of fake history on the sort of the political and economic level. But on a personal level, the Fleet Foxes thing reveals 
something disturbing. Yeah, the quote comes from back when people bought compact discs and I bought the the Fleet Foxes debut record that came out on CD in 2008 or something like that. And in the liner notes of that record, Robin Pecknold, who's the singer and kind of chief songwriter of Fleet Foxes, he's writing about an experience he had growing up where he has all these memories about his childhood. And then at some point comes across, I can't remember if it's like a series of photographs or it's like home movies or something where it's all... I think it was an album, like a photo album. A photo album, yes. All of these photographs of those memories. And he realized, oh, at some point growing up, I must have seen these photos and committed them as like my memories when really what I'm remembering about my childhood is just these photographs Maybe they're secondhand memories to a degree. And the the reason why I quoted it in the book is because I was trying to make the point that to some extent, our memories are shaped by external factors all the time, whether it is photographs or Instagram posts, maybe, or things that we read. And to try to come to a true memory uninfluenced by stimuli would be, I think, probably impossible. And this gets in a lot of trouble because obviously the photographic record isn't always perfect. Or truthful. Yeah. Right. There's whole areas of our lives, like family, where people have these nostalgic definitions that their own lives belie. You know, that's very powerful because the idea of a family, but then you look at it, oh, how did I grow up? But you don't, but there's this parallel thinking of maintaining a nostalgic vision that doesn't at all match your experience. So there's a kind of shifted perception that doesn't take you into consideration and your own honest perceptions into consideration. Yeah. What is it like for me? Yeah, and that, and especially when it comes to things like trauma growing up, yes. childhood trauma even, where nostalgia in, in some ways could completely conceal yeah. truths realities that shouldn't be forgotten or papered over because they reveal something out of the past that's extremely problematic or traumatic, scary, worth trying to deal with in some way in the present because if we forget it, then we might end up repeating it or something like this. And this, I see this not even, not even on the level of the family, but certainly in the level of the nation, if you want to, or like the public, this is the big issue that I took with the Make America Great Again, MAGAism, Trumpism discourse is that obviously it prevents a version of the past or really frames frames a version of the past as worth longing for. You should be nostalgic for this concocted fabrication of the past or distortion of the past. Yeah. But And I also see this in, in terms of, in the book I write a little bit about media, intellectual properties, things like this, movies, reboots, and all this. But companies like Disney do the same thing. This is worth being long, worth being nostalgic for. Therefore, it's framed that way. So that's the big question I have is who does the nostalgia serve ultimately? Yes, that's really, because I'm a therapist and I hear about everybody's family, that's an important question. And I think about the case of, I think her name is Juanetta Hoyt, she was the poster child of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, because she had five infants who died of that. 
Then later on, she had other kids too. Later on, some of her other kids remembered her smothering those babies with a pillow. And yet one member of the family who lived, who managed to survive, denied it all and said she was a loving mother. She never would have done that. Whereas three others said they saw her. And I think sometimes the ideas we have obscure and completely pervert our memory so that we don't, our own experience doesn't matter. That right. The nostalgia for the ideal, where I remember walking, picking raspberries in the thicket when I was already a grown up. And there was a guy, I saw a local farmer and he was a little embarrassed. And I said, oh yeah, we're picking raspberries. And he said, Ah, I did that in childhood. Wasn't that a wonderful time? And I said, no, it wasn't. Childhood's awful. You have no control at all. <laughs> and he said, you're right. I feel that way too. Honestly, this is uh, yeah, so much of the, I guess, like the fuel that drove me to want to spend the last few years really researching nostalgia is that very sentiment about the supposed freedoms of childhood which and I touched on this in the book as well, the amount of the lack of control, the, the amount of unfreedom that that young people shoot, at least I had. And so, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we grow up with omnipotent tyrants. We have no choice. Yeah, I was much more of a free range kid. Rub it in, why don't you? <laughs> I think there is. That's one of the kind of, I think, major differences also of growing up in a more rural setting especially back in the 80s where it was go outside, don't come back until it's dark. And yeah, like I was all, all over the place. So I didn't necessarily grow up in in the like highly supervised environment that a lot of kids grow up now. Because I think if I did, my memory of childhood would be very different. But it is, I think it's one of the reverse of as an adult, I feel like I had more freedom as a child in some ways that was free of a lot of the obligations. Bills. Yeah. And <laughs> and I had the ability to, especially growing up near woods and forests, and I had the ability to just go into the trees and in a literal sense and just whittle my time. But yeah, a lot of what you work with in, in therapy is nostalgia. A lot of times, and they're people's relationship to their memories, ultimately. But this is really interesting, right? Because if your memories are completely up for revision at any point without you even realizing, like the Fleet Foxes example, then if memory is not like a solid foundation for identity or navigating your way in the world, then the thing that is, is narrative, right? Like how you consider yourself maybe in the world. And I think that question of who does the nostalgia serve is tied to that, right? It's all about having some sort of collective narrative in a certain direction. And again, like nostalgia is not necessarily good or bad, but it's just, a, it's part of the human experience, right? And it can be weaponized <clears throat> in certain ways. Oh yeah. And like the consumer, the consume nostalgia especially mm. that part of the book. I, yeah, I, it's interesting, right? Because yeah, back when I was a kid, I used to eavesdrops on all the adult conversations mm -hmm. and adults being anywhere from back when I was a kid, 
there were a lot of post-grad students and whatnot around, so like 30s all the way to people in their 60s. And it was one of those things where I rarely heard the kind of like lengthy, in-depth discussion among adults about, say, entertainment shows that I do now. And I'm including myself in this, right? As in lots of people spend time talking about TV shows now. Yeah, just like really in-depth where like that kind of becomes to a certain degree people's identities almost. Their lives rather than the lives they live, Mm -hmm. the lives they observe. Yeah, that honestly, that's a phenomenon that's captured my attention even just recently. And I have a, a book out toward the end of this. Let's see, I think it's coming out in the UK toward the end of this year and then in the US in January. And it's called Foreverism. And the point of it is to dissect things like fandom and to, to what degree does nostalgia play a, a role in it or which up till now I've really I've been pretty adamant that it has. Oh, people are nostalgic for Star Wars, therefore Disney makes Star Wars. But instead I wanted to just look at it a different way. And it could be totally wrong, but I just wanted to look at it from a backwards angle. And and one of the things I, I talk about in, in that forthcoming book is about the endless conversations people have about franchises, for example. And one of the things that I I remember, I was getting like my haircut or something a few years ago, and my barber was talking to a few people who were all in there waiting to get their haircut. And they were all talking about one one of the latest, I don't know, one of the latest Star Wars shows or whatever on Disney Plus. And they had nothing good to say about it, <laughs> but it was just like <laughs> endless discussion, but it was endless criticism. And what I realized was like, this sort of functions as a technology that allows people to have conversations about them on podcasts, on, on YouTube channels, in barbershops, and, but that it always fails to match the allure of the original, nostalgia for the original, if you will. Um, yeah. There's yeah, a, like a purity thing that it's always being compared to, right? Right. And the crazy thing is that for me, like someone like like Disney, is they're part of this framing where they say, obviously, we're going to make more Star Wars. That means that Star Wars is something that you want more of, ostensibly, and it's worth having more of. But the irony is that it also, the Disney is also saying there's nothing new that really can top Star Wars. It Mm. traps fandoms in these very unsatisfiable kind of loops, but that is itself part of the... I think part of the strategy of Disney is it doesn't really matter if it's good or not, even though it's oftentimes promoted as the next big thing that you can't miss. It's really just something to produce kind of conversation online and offline and therefore increase streams and all that. But I don't want to get sidetracked here, but that's something I've been thinking a lot about as well. No, I think there's something to that as well, though, that nostalgia at its worst is a loop that you are trapped in. And I think a lot of a lot of human distress is like that, right? That you are stuck. And that there is no way out. And mm. from conversations listening to Eco and Harriet, like the name of the game is empowerment, that you can create to some degree a sense that you are capable of doing the next thing. And there is something fascinating about this idea of nostalgia being weaponized with things like movies or sitcoms. And uh, yeah, there's a couple of quotes. They're all too long, really. I <laughs> collected a whole bunch about the sitcoms, but there was this thing of the, you make the point of the ordered world of the sitcom, the sense of determinism, the feeling that nothing really is at stake and all threats are relatively manageable. And that's knowing that like none of these characters will ever get old. You know what the sort of social, political, economic future is for maybe these 
shows like Seinfeld, Friends, Frasier, etc. But like all of that stuff just gets frozen in time and it's like an escape. Frasier is definitely one of those shows that I grew up with. Seinfeld and Friends as well, but Frasier. And it's funny as well, given that now I am helping out on this podcast and it's therapists. But Frasier had that allure of just, it's like comfort food or something. And it's that idea of escape that it is, it cannot be threatened whilst everything else in your life might be falling apart. Again, mm. the politics, the economics, your country is just falling into dust. And uh, But this show mm. is like the safe place. But you make the point that like the, the point is to return, like the, the illusion of escape, it, it's, it's obviously not possible, right? Mm. There's the quote about that Walden Pond, he didn't go there to escape, but to recharge and return. The idea of taking the view of the outsider without leaving. And again, best case scenario is maybe that's what a therapist does as well for the client. The client is trying to get you back to your authentic experience rather than the experience you formed to yourself so that you could survive better. It's trying to help you find out what things meant to you rather than to tell yourself the stories you've been told in order to survive and imagine that you lived an ideal life, that you were the only bad one, you know, Mm -hmm. that there is this escape from authenticity because of the necessity for survival in a family. And a lot of children have adjusted in order to survive, but then their authentic selves assert themselves in ways that are not necessarily helpful, and they've denied that struggle and are often nostalgic from the ideal families the ideal families they didn't have and to think about something like like a, a sitcom that provides not just an escape but some kind of stability and some kind of authenticity and might even be something that a person might long for in in a in in a family that maybe as we're talking about here, maybe was more traumatic than it's remembered. But what gets remembered is perhaps the representations of families on so many of the the narratives, popular cultural entertainment, sitcoms and series that have really persisted through the 80s, 90s, certainly into the 21st century. And that what might be longed for is, in fact, those representations and I think that's a a real issue when it comes to the kind of nationalistic nostalgia that is promoted by Trump and Trump-like figures in the United States, is that the, the falsified version of the past that gets promoted is often a past that was only really represented in something like television at the time shows in the United States, like leave it to beaver or something that I just think reflected perhaps what people, some people might've wanted to watch, but doesn't reflect reality as it totally is, of course. No. And the problems that are presented in those sitcoms are resolvable on what my problems aren't. I also think uh, there's this interesting idea then, I guess, of like how you, how you then maybe use nostalgia in a slightly different way. It's rather than make America great again, that it's this idea of that if memories are able to be changed, erased or uh, forgotten, that like, again, 
there's a personal level and then there's a sort of wider sort of social level. You make the point that there's lots of radical events that have just been written out of history, that there's that element of like deliberate, deliberate forgetting or, mm -hmm. and then that shapes a kind of national consciousness about, like you said, what are the correct things to be nostalgic for? Right. And so really, if memory is completely something you can play with, then you can see it will always be a political uh, tool to some degree. And it's, I guess, the way that you fight back is you have something worth, you think is in, aligned with maybe your political values that you think is worth remembering, right? And you bring that to the fore, like say, hey, this is worth being nostalgic for. Yeah, I think that this is a big reason why, like I said at the beginning of the book, nostalgia tends to have a bad reputation is that we've had, especially in the US where I live, we've had for a, quite a long time, almost like a corporate or state sanction nostalgia. Here's what you ought to be nostalgic for, what ought to be yearned for, which is at bottom kind of a conversation on what ought to be considered the past or what ought to be considered history. In the US, there's just like endless back and forth battling about what gets taught at the primary and secondary levels in school, what gets considered history and what's not. And there's such a war on it's an idea like or a school of thought like critical race theory as being some sort of distortion of the past there's always this and the it's reactionary folks tends to be right-wing folks who are the ones who are really threatened by you might call it like alternative visions of the past but in a lot of times it's just like literally what really happened because it's seen as a threat to progress myths or narratives of traditionalism and uh, and things like in individualism and so on and so forth. And a lot of times nostalgia gets aligned with that because once you can frame the past in a certain way and then say, this is what you ought to be nostalgic for, then that's what nostalgia ends up getting used to weaponize, to, to support. And then I write 300 pages about it. <laughs> that's the restorative nostalgia that you talk about in your book is also one of the things that often happen with people, especially reckoning with family members that have died. Because one of the major things about working with people, especially working with people that come from like very chaotic households, is that the kids will not often have a uniform memory of their childhood. And that's a huge mm. source of a lot of strife between the kids. Completely. Because depending on parental relationships with their kids, even without necessarily overt favoritism, it's going to be different with a parent with each child. And if children's you, needs are different. Children, right. some children need to hide, others need to reveal. And it's also one of those things where, again, if you have parents where, you know, they're both lacking some major skills in parenting, but then you often have, like, siblings that have these great strife over which parent was the abusive parent. Because depending on the child, that's going, it often is going to be a different answer. One, one child will say it's the dad. The other child will say, no, it's the mom. And if you don't come to an agreement that causes an incredible amount of strife, and that's one of the aspects of one thing about being able to weaponize nostalgia, right? Mm -hmm is ultimately this lack of a 
ability for a lot of people to, again, like really dive into their memories or dive in and talk about things that have happened and have a certain healthy relationship with nostalgia is can be hard to come by because all these kinds of whether it's the restorative or the consumed nostalgia, all these different kinds of nostalgia that's talked about in, in this book is often one where it's basing it on people that are having a hard time honestly reflecting back, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's if, you know, the moment that there's a window of disagreement between individuals or communities or political parties or what have you about the nature of the meaning of the past, or even if there's even if there's agreement over the meaning of the past, but maybe a, a disagreement over how it should be emotionally responded to, whether with nostalgia or with anger or combination of the two or whatever. Once there's a space of disagreement, anyone can wedge in there and weaponize nostalgia, and, as you say, and use it against, use it to pit people against one another. I didn't get the chance to really explore this in the hours have lost their clock, but one one way that nostalgia can get purposefully weaponized to to make trouble is to use nostalgia as a justification for the evidence of polarization. To say we're so polarized today, people can't get along, but in the past we used to. This was Trump's whole whole deal, right? If we could just go back to the past, that was when we were less polarized, et cetera. I think that's a bipartisan talking point for a long time, though. The idea of America that is exaggerated by Trump and some of their people call slavery black immigration, which is really a very different way of framing. Mm. But And other people will call it slavery. But that there's a nostalgia for for an idea that never existed, but people imagine existed, or if it did, it existed for very few, and yet was promoted to the many. That's that distortion that you mentioned, the function of distortion through nostalgia, which is enormous. Yeah, and the thing about human emotion is that it has a tendency to to distort. Even anger can do it. The problematic thing with nostalgia, of course, is that it's oriented backward, but also to some extent, it has something to do with how we look to the future. But it is, we tend to associate it with the past. And so now when we're talking about the problem of nostalgia, suddenly now we've got a few problems on our hand. We've got the problem of how emotions function and what they do in us and how they affect perception and all that. But then also we have this problem of how it affects what happened in the past and history. And to me, that's, it's, yeah, it's a really, it's an endless source of fascination because it, really puts a lot of important things at risk. And I think that's one reason why it's so easy for all all kinds of people to use it against others in bad ways. Yeah. One of the examples you put out was Martin Luther King's legacy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's yeah. a lot of times some of the people that are quoting him in 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 what many would see as very cynical ways are also the exact same people that would downplay what really happened during the civil rights era. Right, exactly, right? yeah. You know, right. They're the ones that are just like bold-faced quoting Martin Luther King yeah. <laughs> every yeah. year, multiple times a year, right? The thing that's exciting 
about some of the things you've written about. It reminds me a bit of, we recently had the author of Red Enlightenment on, who's written about spirituality and socialism and how you can't just oh, right. completely eject religion from the equation from the future because it clearly means a lot to people. But he spoke very much about this idea of that the world is just brimming with potential. Anything ultimately can happen, right? In all mm -hmm. kinds of different ways. And I thought it was really interesting that to me, there was a parallel that you're saying that history is full of possibility, right? Like it's just waiting. All these things have happened. <laughs> and in some ways, they're just waiting to find a, a, a new lease of life, as it were. And sure, and the worst version of it is like people completely stripping the radical parts of figures like Martin Luther King to enable neoliberalism to continue on. But there's, there's a positive version of that as well, isn't there? Or more interesting versions, which is the past is there and it's right for new futures. And again, that sort of comes back to the idea that time just isn't linear in any sort of fashion. Yes, we get older, bodies decay, etc. But that it doesn't really work like that in, in terms of your experience of time or feelings that, that things just fold in on each other all the time. And yeah, you only have to, I don't know, smell some fragrance and you'll be like back uh, yeah. decades. Absolutely. Proust. So, yeah. Yeah. Proust. And to me, I, nostalgia is the emotional evidence or the proof of that. And of course, Ginny O'Dell's most recent book, Saving Time, is uh, just about this very issue. And she talks about the idea of clock time being a very ordered, scientifically managed way of making sense of something that honestly is, is far stranger, more surreal more looping, folding yeah. in on itself, which is the experience of time. And that only really in the context of a progress-obsessed kind of society would everything really adhere rigidly to this forward momentum kind of model of time when really our, our emotions prove that's just really not the case. I mentioned this sort of toward the end of the book, but there, there's also the very fact that the idea that someone could come along and say, oh, let's make America great again, because obviously it's not great for us. And by us, they mean advantaged, typically white men. The idea that that's true, of course, is ridiculous because privilege, white privilege still exists in Western society. And the idea that there's a huge difference between the recent past and the present, and that they have to get back there to reclaim it as if people of color and marginalized communities aren't still being marginalized. That to me is a real weaponization of nostalgia because it posits a fall from grace for white advantaged rich people, which, as we know, didn't really happen. Right. But what it captures, though, I think, is a sense of loss because those people who are Trump supporters have lost out. America has, in 1970, we were the most egalitarian, financially egalitarian nation in the world. Of all the 30, not in the whole world, the 30 developed nations now, we're the least of all those 30. And so that he has a lot of small business people, the guy who used to have a dry cleaner, who now is Walmart, the person whose family had the grocery store, which is also Walmart, or the stationery store, which is also Walmart, or whatever, that they have lost this sense and upward mobility in the United States is not what it was. You can't make it if you really try. It's a much more socially stratified and economically stratified country. 
and they have lost out. But the nostalgia doesn't take into consideration the reasons that they lost out right. when they were all, all those right. people lining up to see the Queen, nostalgia for the British Empire. But and that's gone. But somehow the Queen, that funeral, which was so attractive to British people, was a testimony to an imperial splendor, which Britain certainly doesn't exist. Yeah, there's definitely a theatrical element to all of that stuff. It's like recreating something. It reminds me, uh, so there's a town in Britain called Bath, Bath Spa. It's a fairly sort of famous Roman town. And they did, I remember they did this redevelopment in the center to make a shopping center thing. And obviously they have these sort of building regulations. And so they had to match all the other buildings. Bath is a very like zero industry town. It's all just built for pleasure or leisure or whatever historically. And so it has this very particular kind of architecture, particular kind of stone, particular kind of look. And so obviously this shopping center had to look exactly like all of that. And so it's this weird kind of theme parkish kind of vibe <laughs> when you go in there because it's this fake thing that kind of looks like it, but you can tell it's fake. And I think that particularly with the royal family stuff, it's similar. It's like that time has gone, but yet it gets recreated again and again. It's a loop again, isn't it? I'm just fascinated as well. Like you make this point about the escape attempts, right? If say sitcoms or whatever, maybe a much needed relief from the real world, as it were, that you make the point that another sort of form of escape is this sort of survivalist thing, right? And the key thing that yeah, blew my mind there was that it's that idea that you don't want to face the world. You just want to be in survival mode because then you don't have to think anymore. <laughs> you can just right. focus on this one thing. And then that made me think, actually, that's fed back into the entertainment thing because the post-apocalyptic entertainment stuff like Last of Us that came out recently right. is that same thing. It's, oh, now let's just watch other people do nothing but survive. There's that other layer to it. Yeah. And Douglas Rushkoff has written about this because there is a a connection between the survivalist dream of living off the land in a remote location, et cetera, and also a kind of nostalgia for what might be initially perceived as nostalgia for the cabin in the woods and all of those kind of associated with the with the past, but but almost is a way to another way to think about it is a a an escape through endless sort of focus on the present what's at hand i must gather wood and supplies and then i've got to fix this thing and then i've got to trek out and hunt this animal or whatever and i think liam like you said earlier it's that escape might not be possible and i would also add that it also might not ultimately be desirable for lots of people because as I wrote about in the book, I, I gave some examples of famous kind of survivalists who were only able to do what they did with outside help <laughs> and yes. to be able to truly survive. And it also might not be desirable in terms of political struggle because or social justice, because to some degree, we lose people when they go completely off the grid and re remove themselves and become remote. Because let's say, okay, let's say there's something in the way that they have chosen to live that's worth taking note of.
I don't get to see that. I don't get to take part in that or learn from that. I don't get to pass by it on my way to work and say, okay, there's an, there's my, there might be an alternative way to, to live. Instead, they just disappear from the public sphere and are never heard from again. And we also may need that kind of energy, that desire for an alternative to the present day living conditions of neoliberal society. We might need that and we may want them here with us in society to try to figure out a way to fight for something better. So that was, I definitely don't fault people for wanting to escape from the drudgery of everyday life, but that a lot of times when that is taken to its logical conclusion, followed all the way through, we, we might end up losing people who we really need here with us, if that makes sense. With alternatives, there's a book called Everyday Utopias. It's a new book by Kristen Godsey, where she talks about how the idea of a utopia was so big at the turn of the century that it was possible to live differently and have different personal lives and social lives and families and political lives. And that that replaced the nostalgia for the past, a sort of hope for the future, which you could get from looking at alternatives. Just amplifies your point. Yeah. Yeah. So also that idea of a collective dreaming, because I think the part, obviously part of the nostalgia thing then is to not think anymore. (laughs) And the thing about dreaming of a future is that it does require actually thinking and logistics, figuring things out. And if you've had a hard day at work, probably involved a lot of thinking about the future and blah, blah, blah. And so it makes sense that you come home and then want to face the other way and zone out with a TV show, et cetera. And that's totally normal too. Like that, like I told, I completely get it. It's hard when you're in working world, working mode, life, family unit, all of that to suddenly stop and wrench yourself, wrench your head out of that and be like, what did I really do today? What's really going on? What is the work that I do? What's the work that's being done by others and all of that? And it does require, I think, a a push to work with others in order to, because it's like I, I said in the book, someone else will write what the future will be. It might be big tech, it might be politicians, it might be Disney, who knows. But someone else will come in and say, here's what the future is going to be. And then they'll say, and it was inevitable. It's ordained to be this way. And I, we owe it to ourselves to understand that just as these these powerful figures might write the past for us and then tell us you should long for have an emotional connection to it. They may also do the same for the future. And I teach at a university and so many of my students who are 18, 19, 20 years old are very skeptical of, and rightly of that kind of, not just a a kind of ready-made fabricated nostalgia, but also of fabricated kind of hope. Oh, things will get better when it's, I'm reading all this stuff about the world and the climate and white supremacy, et cetera. And it doesn't quite seem that way. And it it leads to a lot of interesting discussions in the classroom setting. And my job is to get them to the, get them to the point where they can keep those conversations going once they leave. Yeah. Because again, although it doesn't feel like it, that anything, (laughs) any mad shit can happen. Like the direction of everything can go any particular way. It's just that there's a, what's it called? Status quo bias right? Mm. Like the history has a certain kind of weight to it, which makes certain outcomes inevitable, but it's not true. Mm. And yeah, one of the things that I've noticed a lot, and I don't know if this is happening in America, but everyone's talking about creating memories, right? I think this is maybe the result of 
having cameras on your phone, but it's always, oh, I'm doing this for the memories. And then it's fascinating because I do actually have a friend who has explicitly said they edit out certain photographs or only take photographs of certain things so that they will have a particular recollection a later date, right? Mm -hmm. They're curating their future self's memories. And that's like, okay, that must be happening. This isn't just unique to this one person. This must be happening all over the place. And again, it's kind of disturbing or scary potentially because you realize to what degree there is no solid ground that maybe your whole life is based on. <laughs> yeah. What troubles me about the creating memories with taking photos, videos, using digital devices is that so many of those, quote, memories are stored in the cloud, which is not just ecologically ruinous, has a huge environmental uh, carbon footprint, environmental impact, but is also rather precarious and subject to data breaches and accidental deletions and you, I hear this all the time in the news where some amount of information, just a huge amount of information just disappears because of some thing that Amazon Web Services has done and deleted it all or whatever. And so we have at the same time an enormous amount of documented information. Maybe we frame these as memories or what have you. That is also prone to deletion pretty easily. Yep. But what's really fascinating, I guess, is rather than this unmooring sense of, oh, memories could all just be based on junk for want of a better word that you can make the point in the book that like forgetting is a human process that's is beneficial right it allows you to well, continue to move on it can be or it's opposite one of the things that's happening now and it happened in ireland when they unearthed all those skeletons in the nunneries and all those murdered children mm. that people need to go back in order to go forward. They need to claim their past. So it can be beneficial and it can be destructive to have obliterated memory. Mm. Completely, yeah. And that's that was the where I was writing about that, about forgetting and remembering both kind of being about part of the process of forming memories, which that's we it. do to some extent. It's there's there has to be a, some amount of both in order to create the system we have in our brain for memory making. But the book by Kate Icorn, End of Forgetting, in which she makes this argument, it's an excellent book. If you haven't, definitely check it out. She makes this argument that we have now a, a long stream of information attached to a person, like a data trail that starts even before they're born. People posting, parents posting photos of their kids before they're even born that kind of follows them interminably in, into the future and can be really troubling and problematic when they want to no longer be tethered to that past. And I make the argument in the book. And yet at the same time, that sort of digital trail is so precarious and subject to disappearance. Just because Instagram, for example, is like such an institution in our world does not mean it will be here forever. And I think that's worth remembering if so much of what we consider to be human memory is tied up with it. Yeah. I guess maybe we've covered this, but you mentioned monuments in the book as well, that they're not necessarily there to preserve history, but to fix memory. And again, it's that sort of who does nostalgia benefit for? In the book, I mainly say that I go into the history of the Confederate monument as being a, a tactic to terrorize black communities into sort of a, a dynamic that says the the Civil War, the Confederacy, and the legacy of slavery doesn't totally end. It doesn't go away. You must now labor within its shadow in the town square. 
And I make the case that to some extent that ends up, it it certainly contributes to the Make America Great Again tenor, if you will. It it adds to that idea where nostalgic Trumpist kind of supporters look to the monuments to, to say, look, this was our history and it was great, et cetera. And for many of us, we know that wasn't the case. But yeah, in the U.S., there was a push to remove a lot of those Confederate monuments because, again, so many of them were built at the height of civil, the civil rights movement as a way to try to refix the white supremacy of, of the U.S. I wondered also if you could apply some of that sort of idea to just beyond monuments. Like, if you're making the case that this stuff is architecture, to some degree, is there to fix memory, and that if we are living in the shadow of this stuff, that it influences our thoughts and actions. Yeah, I walk around London, and there's skyscrapers everywhere, right? <laughs> it, it creates a certain kind of reality, right? This is what progress looks like, or these are sort of the cathedrals to money, as it were. It's, yeah, to what degree are we always just navigating a landscape that is trying to shape us in some way towards things or away from other things? But I guess that's a whole other subject. (laughs) Mm. I haven't read the skyscraper literature, but I'm sure it's out there. And I'm sure it's fascinating. Decoy, did you have any sort of final thoughts? My my main takeaway from reading this in some ways in terms of, I guess, like therapeutic application and often what we end up doing in therapy is like detaching people's attachment to certain memories that aren't necessarily working for them anymore. Right. And in terms of nostalgia, because these are memories are things that, you know, especially if you didn't necessarily have this lovely, uneventful, charmed life. Memories are things that like you often have to renegotiate through life. Right? It's not a one and done. One aspect of being able to do that is to be able to develop a certain amount of detachment in terms of being able to assess it. Right. Mm-hmm. Because when you're like seriously attached to that memory, you can't really assess it properly. And I think that is because I know you talk about what going back in order to see what the future brings is one of your final sentences for the book. Right. And I think a big part of being able to do that is that being able to take a step back when looking at her past. But you can have the nostalgia, you can have the feelings, right? There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but you have to know what they are. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree because I think that's one of the major steps in identifying it when it's used uh, in certain political discourses. Totally, totally. Because yeah, we want to see not just when we want to identify nostalgia, not even when it shows up in things like presidential discourse, for example, but also we want to find anger when anger is being used to justify going to war or something like fear is being used to build walls at the southern border of the United States. And so I think it's super important to pay attention to the different ways that emotions get weaponized in discourse to serve certain ends. And oftentimes, the emotion that gets invoked is a huge sign in what you're missing in your life, right? Right. And also that, that again, is like this very huge manipulable aspect of human psychology. That mm-hmm. ultimately all this nostalgia is about all the different interests 
going, we're going to meet your needs when they absolutely have no intention. In right, meeting. yeah. So it is a lot of times when, whenever I think about nostalgia, especially in talking to and relating to clients, nostalgia is a certain seduction that is often used. Right. If that ex-boyfriend or that ex-girlfriend coming back going, hey, remember the good times? Because, you know, what we want for people, what I think what we want for anyone in terms of a good, healthy mindset is somebody that's grounded, somebody that's less manipulable is ultimately, I think, what we are looking for in a, in being able to see a good future forward. And one aspect of that is understanding how all these things like nostalgia whip up or use our memories, our feelings against us. And again, does it mean that you have to give up nostalgia and that you can't mm. enjoy nostalgia? I'm a huge nostalgia enjoyer myself. <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time watching favorite movies and listening to favorite music from, mm -hmm. you know, or even that's one of the things that's crazy about memory is as you get older, for example, music that I hated in childhood. Now I enjoy it because it invokes childhood. I feel that at times. No, I do feel that at times. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. All right. We can enjoy these things, but we should know what they are. Yeah. And that knowing what they are shouldn't necessarily diminish our enjoyment, but it just gives us a grounding to be able to move forward. Yeah. And I, I don't want to keep us over time, but I will just say this to that point. So much of the, the psychological research on nostalgia, all it talks about is how it promotes pro-social behavior, it leads to a greater sense of well-being and self-esteem and all of these, these benefits that are well-documented. And yet we also are aware of how anger makes us feel good too. You get super mad, you vent, you get it all out, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's productive. It's what makes human emotion so tricky. Yeah, there's just, when Liam, you were talking about architecture, it reminded mm. me of this discussion because there's a guy named Harris Stone who wrote a book Reflections of an Unsuccessful Architect. And he mm. said, what makes a building appealing is variety. If every floor is the same and it's huge, it's totalitarian architecture that dwarfs people because the uniformity of our own feelings and our own being is erased. And I thought of that when you talked about these skyscrapers. And that if there is a uniform picture, like in the Confederate statues, that you're supposed to have erases it is a, and it, it is a dangerous thing rather than allowing people to the difference between them, as Ekoi says, and the difference is everywhere. Having a one, an enforced nostalgia is a dangerous thing, like yeah. MAGA. Yeah, America. but you can see that if nostalgia is a felt thing, is a clue for what's missing in your life, you yes. can see why you would defend that feeling from attack, right? Then that's what it would feel like when someone is saying, hey, we need to tear all these statues down because it's, it's fucking hideous what it represents. If someone has bought into the idea that statue equals something that's missing in my life in whatever sort of vague way, you can see why people get riled up. You can see why it gets used to sell shit or to make you... Yeah. politically aligned with things because it's like yeah. the one of the big i guess motivators or like something i guess for humans but 
yeah, this I guess the history of it as well was interesting as well, just that considered a disease and it starts yeah. turning up in, in war situations and, right. and slavery and stuff like that. I guess we didn't get to touch on any of that kind of stuff. Again, yeah, if you've been taken away from your home and you're made to fight in a war or you have been enslaved, yeah, nostalgia is going to be remembering exactly what's missing in your life, yeah. freedom, autonomy. The only thing I'll say about brain, the, the medical the medicalization of nostalgia reminds me a lot of how we deal with our drug policy, but I won't go into that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that's the thing, right? Like historical examples like nostalgia being labeled a disease makes you go, okay, what exists now that would similarly seem a bit out of place, like mm. a few hundred years. But yes, we'll have to end it just because we have to end it. But Thank yeah, that you. was great. Thank okay. you so much. Again, you. really highly enjoyable book. Oh yep. gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. I so appreciate it. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie, Fontaine, Hartley Wilmoth, Red Yen Cola, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Into personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.